Good morning. Hope you're all doing well. Thanks, Pastor and Nathan, for the kind introductions. I would have to tell you that the description of knocking off some of the rough edges, I have a lifetime of God doing that with me and a few others, you know, joining in. So I, I'm grateful for God's mercy and grace and kindness and the blessing of having people like Jeff a small bit and then uh, Nathan more and other students. Part of the joy of being a seminary prof, not exactly the same as being a pastor. I mean, it, all, there's all kinds of similarities, but I, I realize I'm a part of a larger seminary team and I'm a small part of what God's doing in life. And, and then here's the, here's the big part of the joy is we're, we're part of investing in lives that will minister where we likely will not minister. We'll multiply our lives to impact parts of the kingdom we'll never touch. And it's part of trying to have truth go throughout the four corners of the world in a local believing fellowships. I'm a lover of lighthouses, churches, local churches that are holding the truth up high and presenting the gospel to the lost and seeing folks grow in Christ. And so it's a joy for me to be here because it's a local church I care for and uh, pastored by people I care for, taking a stand I agree with. Glad to be here for the seminary, guys. I look forward to our time together. And um, it'll just be a blessing. I am part of a different team. My wife is here. And, uh, you know, uh, we didn't have the eight kids and 43 years of marriage just for my glory or on my own. I have a great wife who has dealt with a bonehead for 43 years. And, uh, and I'm thankful for her love and her kindness and her sweetness and uh, just the joy it is to have her in my life. Okay, so um, we're going to look at a sermon titled Christ's Prophet. As Christ followers, those who have been transformed by the gospel, another name for believers, but as Christ followers, it's obvious why we give so much attention to Christ. The Bible spends a lot of time and space devoted to the promise of his coming, to the birth and ministry that he experienced in the first century A.D. and praise God, to his explaining his future coming to bring God's plan to its divinely intended culmination. So Christ is important to us. The Old and New Testament both present Christ in various roles, three key ones we often mention, a prophet, priest, and king. I'm just going to pick one of them and not be here till four o'clock to tell you all three. Uh, We're going to look at various Old and New Testament passages throughout the sermon, just for starters, and to help you see why this is an important concept that we often don't understand as well as we should. Here are several New Testament passages that refer to Christ as prophet. In John 4, after reminding the Samaritan woman that he knew the details of her marital history and her current relationship with a man who wasn't her husband, said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And he knew some intimate details of her life. John 6, Jesus transforms five barley loaves, two fish, into enough food for over 10,000 people because it was the feeding of the 5,000 men. And after the gathered crowd saw this sign, I mean, they have no food. They see this little kid go up to the front and whatever it was, these barley loaves and fish, enough to feed 10,000, over 10,000 people with bunches left over. After they saw this miracle, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. 
John 6, 14. In John 7, he taught the gathered crowd that he was the source for that living, for that everlasting water. And he says, certainly this is the prophet. In John 9, after he gave sight to the blind man, put the mud in his eyes, sent him down to the pool of Siloam, took a dip and for the first time in his life came out of the water seeing. The Pharisees later got a hold of him, who were the enemy of Jesus, and they wanted to know what he thought about Jesus. They didn't like the answer because he told them he was, he's a prophet, John 9, 17. The crowd who welcomed Jesus coming over the Mount of Olives in the triumphal entry, riding down on that donkey colt to the bottom of the Mount of Olives said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And then as Pastor Jeff has been preaching in Matthew, he explained Matthew 1 recently, in the very end of that passage, even the religious leaders of Jerusalem who were plotting the arrest and the death of Jesus feared the possible reaction of numerous Jews since, quote, many of them regarded him as a prophet. So what can we learn about Jesus' role as prophet that should impact our lives and our understanding of him as God the Son? Next slide. So the simple sermon, the, the basic idea here is, is as a prophet, Christ reveals the character of God the Father to the world. And as a result of that, our lives as his followers should pursue the same goal. God calls each of his followers to pursue lives and have conversations that are based on his word and, and point to God's surpassing character. And throughout this sermon, I want each of us to consider and answer three key questions connected to God's ministry of, through Christ as prophet. First, and we're going to scratch these itches, what was the function of a biblical prophet? Understanding the Old Testament foundation will help us grasp key elements of Christ's ministry as God's prophet. Two, how did God, Christ carry out that prophetic function through his life and ministry? Because there's something to learn about prophets in general, about Christ in particular, and then about us. From the time of God's creation of the universe, God called all humanity to be his image bearers, to show each other and the world around them his incomparable character. A word we use in the New Testament or set of words to glorify him. So as, as prophet Christ totally embraced this demand to clearly communicate and live out God's character and actions to his larger world. God the Father wanted created humanity to clearly understand who he was, what he expected, and what he will do. Then third, how does Christ's prophetic rule connect with his long-promised messianic identity? Jesus came to be the Messiah to provide, to lay the groundwork for the people of his day and us to provide the grounds for our desperately needed forgiveness. We're going to talk about how that prophet role prepared the way for people grasping his role as Messiah. And then we'll try to poke at your and my life as well in the process. First of all then, we have on the screen there, what was a prophet's function in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, both Testaments refer to various prophetic figures. Matthew 23, Abel, the brother of Cain, is called a prophet. Uh, Genesis 20, Abraham, the father of the nation, was called a prophet. Elijah and Elisha, End of 1 Kings, beginning of 2 Kings are abundantly referred to prophets, the authors of Old Testament prophetic books and lots of others. 
But the prophet who gets the most attention in the Old Testament was Moses, the leader of God's chosen people. And I have a reference up there. When you see a reference below a point, go ahead and turn your Bibles there because I'm going to get there eventually. So if you want to. Otherwise, I'll just read the verses and go on. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22 is an instruction of Moses about prophets and what God's going to do. In verse 15, Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. So he's writing this as a, as a man who is carrying out a prophetic function. He's going to raise up a prophet like me from among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So he's speaking with divine authority. Pay attention. Verse 18 he writes again, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to, all, to them all that I command him. God demanded that a true prophet would function as God's mouthpiece. Just as Moses had done. On the one hand, Moses envisions God raising up a number of prophets after his time to bring God's message to the nation of Israel, often one of calling them to repentance, sometimes encouraging them to live a life of obedience and loyalty. But beyond that, Deuteronomy 18 points to the ultimate, the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who God is going to send into the world. And that becomes more clear as we work through the Old Testament into the New. So a prophet was someone chosen by God to speak truth to his subjects. The prophet taught and preached a message totally grounded in God's message to his people. It's important for us to understand that the authority for a prophet's message was never based on who the prophet was or what he thought on his own. Because that authority was based on the perfect source, the creator of the world, Lord of the people, who's revealed his word to these prophets. So a prophet served as God's mouthpiece with a biblically grounded message. The second main point then, Christ's prophet revealed the character of God the Father to the world. Next, sorry. So the idea of people pursuing lives that would advertise God's surpassing character to each other in the surrounding world is Bible-wide, not just the New Testament truth. More specifically, this biblical emphasis begins in Genesis, the very beginning of human existence. And we learn in Genesis 1 that God created all that exists to put his unparalleled character on full display throughout that creation. In Genesis 1, after speaking into existence the heavens and the earth, he prepared the earth for habitation. On the first three days of the creative week, he created light and atmosphere around the earth. He caused fertile land to appear. He gathered the water into one large ocean. After the third day of creation, the heavens and earth lay in stillness. On the earth, the skies, the land overgrown with vegetation, the vast oceans all lay empty but capable of supporting life. And then in the fourth to the sixth days of creation, he filled that handiwork. He placed a vast number of heavenly bodies in space. He filled the sky with birds. He Put sea, filled the sea with fish and mammals. On the sixth day, he created all kinds of animals to inhabit that vegetated land. And then he formed mankind, Adam, the pinnacle of his creative work. Like the animals, Adam was formed from the ground, given provision of food, blessed with fruitfulness. But there's something different, God says. God had special intentions for humanity. Look at Genesis 1.26. In Genesis 1.26, according to most English translations, 
God affirms, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. And I'd suggest a little bit of a difference here is better. I would translate, let us make mankind as our image according to our likeness. And the second part of that expression, according to our likeness, the Lord is indeed affirming that there's a certain degree of likeness between God and humankind that makes mankind different from the rest of creation. They're made according to his image. They're different from the animal world. Our personhood, our rational thought processes, the eternal life principle, the capacity of fellowship with God all set humanity apart from the rest of the created world. But in the first part of that expression, as our image, the Lord is not just saying that he created man in or according to the image of God is as important as that is. The expression, let us make man as our image according to our likeness, is not simply a statement of essence, though it's important, but an affirmation of function. He's not expressing simply what mankind was to be like, was, it was like, according to our likeness, but what he was created to be and to do, according to our image. Punchline, God created mankind to function as his image bearers, to represent him on earth, to be a reflection, have their lives be a reflection of God's nature in, in person. Well, we're going to come back to this again, but we're part of that humanity, and guess what? That's his intention for us, to be image bearers, to have lives that represent him to each other and those around us. So what have you learned from Genesis 1? That God's desire for mankind was to serve as representatives to make him big before the world or to glorify him. Okay, next slide. Is that B? Yeah, we expected this prophet. There we go. I, I didn't make my fault, whoever's running that. Sorry about that. Uh, we're at letter B at the bottom. Yahweh expected his prophets to point to him through their lives and message. Kind of building on Genesis 1, right? If God's plan for all of humanity to represent him before the watching world, when you have a prophet, of, a vehicle of God's intentions on earth, he expected them through their lives and their speech to convey to their audience a vivid and clear understanding of their great God. He intended that they would reveal truths about who God is, his unparalleled character, what God does, his intervention in human history, and what God would do, his plan to bring his created world to his divinely intended culmination. So the message of the prophets was anchored in the character and the activity and the revealed truth of the incomparable, all-powerful God. And through their lives and messages, the prophets were to reveal that amazing and incomparable God to their hearers. It wasn't just an information dump. It wasn't just information to stick in the file cabinet or the hard drive. I'm a fuddy-duddy, right? I still think of my file cabinets. No, through their lives and messages, he wanted them, the prophets, to help God's people understand God better. Now, in several passages, the prophets emphasize this next important truth, and hang with me, I'll explain it as we go. God himself does not play hide-and-seek with his creation, but he reveals himself through his prophets. Now, if we had time, I could talk to you about all the ancient Eastern religious literature where in the, in the larger world, pagan gods could care less for their subjects. It was feed me. They didn't know. 
about God or what he, what, what he wanted. They didn't know if, if they sinned or not, but they expected to be cuffed in the back of the head for sure for doing something. But that's not true with God. God wants his people to know him as character and actions. He, he wants them to have a clear understanding of what he demands of them. Our great God does not leave his followers wondering about his character and his expectations. In Jeremiah 2 verse 31, listen to God's own words to hear his commitment to reveal his character and activity to his people. Part of the indictment that Jeremiah brings against his covenant people, he hear the angst on the, on, the, on the prophet Jeremiah's heart as he relates, relays the divine sadness triggered by Israel's continued unending rebellion. Jeremiah 2 verse 31, And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. And then he quotes God. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Through, through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord is asking whether he had an unclear or unresponsive to his chosen people. Has he been an absentee or unconcerned God? Has he not revealed who he is and what he expects with clarity? Could his divine failure have caused the rebellion? Loser God, loser people. No. In this passage, a wilderness is a scary place, hostile to life, without any obvious route for safe travel, without water or guidance. A traveler would be doomed. He what would it be like to be put in a place of dense darkness? You'd never find your way out. However, the truth was that God was not the absent God who left his followers on their own in a wilderness or dark place. Instead, he clearly revealed who he was and what he wanted from them. Beyond that, in light of all that Yahweh had provided for and done on behalf of his people, their continued rebellion made no sense. This is the God who had poured into their lives. He had he'd helped them know who he was. They could see his amazing character. They could see his power and majesty and his love for them. Instead of being a dark and foreboding God, he had revealed his character to them in abundance throughout their history, through his actions and through his prophets. We're going to come back to this, but this is important. In the various passages that drive this point home, that God knew that as his people would know him and revel in who he was, they'd have the want to, to live the loyal lives he called them to. And he did not leave them in the dark. So, in that regard, I'm going to look at Micah 6, and that's the second passage. I'm going to give you some slides here in a minute. Micah 6, you have the prophet brings a, a covenant lawsuit against God's covenant people because of their ongoing rebellion. And he uses terms like hills and mountains and, and uh, enduring foundations of the earth as covenant witnesses. They were there in Exodus 19 when all of God's people said, all of the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said, yeah, we're, we're with this program. We commit ourselves to it. We bear the name of Israel. But that's not what was happening. So next slide. We have the first two verses of Micah 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains of the hills. Hear your voice. Hear your mountains, the indictment of the Lord, you enduring foundation of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. The penchant here to rebel against a God who cared for them made no sense and was mystifying. And in verse 3, we go on to a heart-wrenching question. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? I mean, it's interesting how God in this covenant lawsuit where you have a kind of a judge, prosecutor, and a defendant, and Israel's the defendant, and God is a prosecutor and judge. Quite often the spotlight goes right on the accused, right? And God put the spotlight on him. 
And he says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me or testify against me. Could it be that God's failure to clearly reveal his expectations for them and never intervened in their lives was the cause for the rebellion? Well, we know the answer to that question. But then God helps his people and us see it. Next slide. So in verses 4 and 5, the Lord gives four clear examples. He answers this unsettling question with these four clear examples of his ongoing covenant care for his people that should have motivated loyalty and obedience from the inside out. Number one, first one. In verse 4, the first half, indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. At the time, Moses, uh, Micah, sorry, he's looking back at Moses' time, 1446, Micah is in the like 7th century BC. At the time envisioned by the prophet Micah in this verse, Egypt was one of the most powerful empires of that part of the world. And, and, And Yahweh reminded his people that not only were the Jews slaves in Egypt, but he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He had delivered them from a predicament from which there was no hope for human deliverance. They were toast. But God intervened. Second one, I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. When God said, I'm going to get you out of the land of Egypt, ten plagues, cross the Red Sea, okay, you're on your own, figure your own way through the wilderness. Find water, find food, it's on on you. No, he didn't do that. He gave them, in verse 4b, I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. He gave them capable leaders, who brought them through the partial barren wilderness where the wrong turn meant death to the brink of the promised land. God was on their side. He, he came to their side. He intervened in human history. Next slide. Verse 5, first part of the verse. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. If you haven't read Numbers lately, let's go ahead to the next slide. And uh, it focuses on the area where God's people were camped when they came to the end of most of their wanderings. This is just across the Jordan River from Jericho in the bottom right. You have red box around the plains of Moab and Baal Peor, the home base for the king of Moab during this set of events. And that whole plain inside the red circle in the right and above that flat area is where God's people camped in their months in the plains of Moab before they crossed the Jordan River. And so... You have God's people in the plains of Moab. And so let's consider verse 5 in light of this geographical setting. In the book of Numbers, Balak, the king of Moab, the guy up at Baal Peor, thought he could prevent the success of God's people because he, he heard about them crossing the Red Sea. and he, he heard about what happened to the Egyptian army. And he heard about their victory over the Amalekites. And he was terrified. So let's try to pull a magic trick and have a magic curse pronounced against them to stop them. He thought he could get a hire a false prophet to pronounce a curse on them and he would win. Well, guess what? He didn't know Yahweh. To his dismay, Yahweh intervened in human history and frustrated the vile intentions of the king of Moab and even his false prophet, Balaam. And besides timing, Balaam comes down the hill and he has a message given to him by Balak, the king of Moab, you know, pronounce curses on God's people and it's like what God, God wanted him to say comes out. And beyond that, to his dismay, Yahweh intervened in human history and frustrated the vile intentions of the king of Moab and his false prophet Balaam. 
And what's the point? Well, God, in giving a messianic prediction through the lips of that false prophet, demonstrated his ultimate power over history. He pointed to the future coming of the promised Messiah. He wanted this nation of people given over to regular covenant treachery to know that he was a God who keeps his promise, that he would bring his promises to pass. He was worthy of their trust and their love and obedience and faith relationship with him. Next slide. The fourth example, in the middle of verse five, these are very profound and patently obvious terms. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? What in the world? Where's Shittim and what's the deal? Well, look at the map. You have these, next slide. You have these two circles on the right. On the east side of the Jordan River is Shittim. On the left side of the Jordan River, the red circle is around Gilgal. So what's between the two on the map? The Jordan River is. So he, he just says real cryptically what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. If you didn't know your biblical narrative, you wouldn't understand that the day that God's people are brought across the Jordan River from Shittim to Gilgal, camped near the Jericho, beginning the conquest of Canaan, the Jordan River was at flood stage. Instead of being a river that may be 10 to 15 feet wide, it was a mile wide of floodwaters going by. What's the chance of 2 to 3 million people getting across very well? None. God, like he did to the Red Sea, parted the waters. Probably a few miles wide to get that group across in 8 to 12 hours. And they walked across on not muddy ground, but dry ground to demonstrate his human intervention in, in their history to bring them into the land of Canaan was done by a God of all power who cared for them, who would give them the victory he promised them. He refers to one of the most, one of those unparalleled ministry miracles of the Old Testament. And then why does he give these four examples? What's he trying to do? Look at the next slide. Why did he do all this and say all this through the prophet Micah? Verse, the end of verse 5. So that you may acknowledge, embrace, understand, live in light of the Lord's righteous acts. Yahweh wanted them to know and wholeheartedly embrace who he was as their covenant Lord. You might be wondering, okay, is Grisani kind of just have material he's trying to give us and it's, it's meaningless. No, why have I labored this point so much? I want you to see that even in the Old Testament, God sought to clearly reveal his identity, character, and attributes to his people through the prophets. It was essential for his followers to have a growing and life-impacting understanding of just who their God was in order to live the lofty life he set before them. We're going to come back to this, but you and I are exactly like that. On our own, we don't have what it takes to live the life that God's called us to live. We have to revel in, celebrate, rehearse this awesome God we serve that creates the want to, sets the fire of our heart on, on, on a flame. And, and then the overflow of that passion that's created by this overwhelmed reality of, reality of an awesome God is love, obedience, and all of that. We'll, we'll get there. So we've talked about how... Uh, Christ, the big idea here, point number two, room number two, Christ as prophet revealed the character of God the Father to the world. He did it through creation, and then he did it through the prophets, wanting them to help God's people understand he's a promised big, deliver big God. 
And then next we get to the life of Jesus. Some of you might be wondering, finally. So next slide. We have Jesus, the prophet, provided the clearest understanding of God the Father to his people. Throughout his teaching, life, actions, Jesus gave those around him the clearest possible picture of the God of Israel. What Genesis 1 talked about, representing before the watching world, what the prophets were doing in reminding God's people about the awesomeness of their God, Jesus does, you know, amazingly. John 14, 1 to 9, I'm going to read some passages if you want to turn there or just listen. In the wake of telling his disciples once again that he was soon to suffer and die at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders, he told them that he would not just leave them, bye-bye, you're on your own, he would prepare a place for them. So verses 1 to 3, let, you not, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Believe me. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and to take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Not all of them. Thomas was not so sure about the future. Just where was Jesus Christ going? So verse 5, Thomas said to him, yeah, it's the same doubting Thomas we read about earlier. Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus provides a powerful answer to Thomas's question that doesn't really answer the GPS coordinate question, but it's a more important issue. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't directly answer the location question, but he emphasizes that he is the ultimate and only way to be where he is going. So no worries. Whether you know the GPS coordinates or not, it doesn't matter. It's through me you're going to be able to go to where I'm going, and I'll make sure it's all prepared. And then Jesus talks about his prophetic role. This idea of representing his father to those around him by providing his followers a clear and understanding of his father's character through his life and teaching and ministry. Verse 7 If you had really known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him because you've seen me in so many settings. Then Philip jumps in with his own question. Verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. I don't have a video of this. I'm just imagining Jesus taking a deep breath, maybe even shaking his head. Philip, Philip, Philip. Preparing to emphasize a point he had made several times before. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So that's, that's, that's a, a significant role that Jesus had. A couple of chapters before, in chapter 12, 44 to 50, Jesus had provided an amazing summary of God's mission for him to the chosen people of Israel in the larger world to represent him. To, you've seen him, you've seen the Father. So verse 44 of chapter 12, Then Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not just in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. Jumping down to verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. Huh. Kind of sounds like what it means to be a biblical prophet. Given a message from God with his authority. 
I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Even Hebrews 1 says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. By, be, by being the God-man that is taken on human flesh, being God's prophet, teaching biblical truths, Jesus took truths that may have seemed theoretical, maybe difficult along the way, and made them concrete. His unparalleled life, his perfect sinlessness, his powerful teaching, his miraculous works provided a visual display of God's identity and character. If you want to know what God was like, you look to Jesus. He's a perfect example. Now we correctly talk about God's intention for us to pursue Christ-likeness, to live Christ-like lives, but way beyond that lofty purpose, Jesus, as the ultimate prophet, as the God in human flesh, presented a life-sized image of his Father in heaven to his disciples, to the people of his day who had heard him and seen him live in unparalleled ways. He did not just teach him, preach truths about God. He wasn't just filling a filing cabinet or a hard drive. He was providing the epitome example of the incomparable character of that God. Like the prophets in the Old Testament, in his prophetic role, Christ pointed to his heavenly Father through his teaching miracles life. He provided an amazing display of God surpassing an incomparable character. So, and again, think about you. Think about me. Where was it at my heart? What does that challenge me to be and to do? We'll come back to that. Next slide. Next slide. Okay, the, then we're at the third point. Where Christ as prophet, his role as prophet, paved the way for people understanding his messianic identity. We're going to connect the ministry of two prophets, Elisha and Jesus. We're going to look at 2 Kings 4 and Luke 7. And consider the, the, how Jesus' role as prophet, building on what Elisha did 700 years earlier, paved the way for his people of his day to grasp he was also the promised Messiah, the one who came to provide the theological foundation for the forgiveness of their sins. So, next slide, 2 Kings 4, 48-37, the outline point is Elisha and the couple from Shunem. So let me just summarize the narrative and focus on some key verses at the end of the passage. Elijah, before him, like him, Elisha and Elijah had a ministry to the northern ten tribes, all characterized by rebellion of Israel. And they were going to those northern Israelites to remind them that the power and the character of their abundant, of their, of their covenant Lord, Yahweh, was abundant and was repeated. Uh, they were the northern kingdom folks all too often were focused on the worship of the god Baal or Baal, a do-nothing non-existent god. And unlike that empty windbag, Baal, God did exactly what he promised. Baal, in his legends, promised big but delivered zero. Yahweh promised big and delivered big. Yahweh was the all-powerful God who had repeatedly intervened in history in amazing and undeniable ways. So the ministries of Elijah and Elisha were meant to help God's people grasp for that truth that they just closed their eyes to, revealing to them, reminding them of the character of their awesome God. Well, that's the backdrop here. So Elijah's up north. Elijah's died. In the next slide, the, no, don't, don't move it. That, that slide is showing the bottom, the red box of El Mahola, his hometown, and the blue little uh, curved line is 
he would regularly go from his hometown into the Jezreel Valley and go on over to Mount Carmel. And go to the next slide. Along the way, he would go by the town of Shunem, red line underneath it, I believe. So uh, he would he'd pass by Shunem, and there was a, a well-known woman there at Shunem who would see this guy walking by regularly and says, hey, you want to have a lunch, a meal? Want to stop for some food? Sure. So then you read the text, and it says he regularly stopped by and had food with the Shunemite woman and her husband. And eventually, because he passed by so often, they said, you know, sweetheart, he's a man who's serving the Lord. Let's put a little, uh, little bedroom up in the flat roof of our house that he could just come and spend the night, have a place to get out of the sun, to get a drink of water, to be able to lay down and take a nap, or whatever. Old people do that, right? I know. So, uh, so Elisha, verses 11 to 17, 8 to 10 was his encounter with Shunem, a woman, 11 to 17, Elisha wanted to show his gratitude for this couple's ministry to him. And since they were older and childless, he asked God to intervene in human history and provide them a son. A year later, the woman from Shunem gave birth to a baby boy. Verses 18 to 25, several years later, when their son was old enough to go out in the fields with his father, he was racked by severe head pains and they took him to his mom and she held him on her lap where he died. And she went up to that bedroom they'd made for Elisha and laid this little body on the, on the bed and got a donkey and a servant and headed to Mount Carmel. Verses 26 to 35, Elisha eventually returned with a Shunammite woman to her home and it's a longer account, but God brought her son back to life through Elisha's act, actions. That was not an everyday occurrence, right? I mean, did you hear what happened at the Shunai woman's house? It was just amazing. The, the end of the passage is kind of anticlimactic, but hang with me. Elisha called Gehazi and said, call the Shunai woman. He called her and she came and Elisha said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowed to the ground. She picked up her son and left. No fireworks, no backflips. But even though the, the passage doesn't end in a resounding way, I think it's a, a resounding event. Next slide. So in, uh, in, in verses 36 to 37, that may be underwhelming. There is no doubt that an event like what happened at Shunem may have, would have become part of local enduring memories. Many of you understand the concept of local memories. Within 24 hours of arriving here in Alaska with my wife, we were talking to Nathan and Natasha last night about various things along the way. And guess what came up? The monster earthquake of 1964. That destructive event is part of many of your memories. Some of you living through it. Others of you hearing vivid stories about it. So it, it, it still is, you move into Anchorage, Alaska, in the first day or two, you're going to hear something about the earthquake in 1964. Because those things endure. So in our passage, in 2 Kings, the raising of to the life of this only child of an older couple was one of the powerful memories of their region. Through the prophet Elisha, Yahweh had restored to this young boy an only child of an otherwise childless couple. Next slide. Then we're going to go to Jesus' ministry in Luke 7. Jesus and a dead young man from Nain. So we move on to the account where the New Testament Gospels, I think, should be connected with 2 Kings 4. After finishing the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6, Jesus returned to Capernaum. He heard quickly that the Roman centurion who, was, who lived in town, who was super kind to the, to the Jews in town, he helped pay for a synagogue to be built. His servant was near death. 
Without even going to his house, he, because of the faith expressed by the centurion, he healed this ailing servant near death. And then we read that he brings us to the gospel narrative that connects with 2 Kings 4. Luke tells us no rationale for this journey from Capernaum at the top down to Nain in the bottom left. But, and who knows whether the crowd that traveled with him knew where they were going. Like, I see this crowd, I don't have a videotape again. I see this crowd traveling south toward Nain and an excited crowd, crowd of the followers of Christ taking this journey. You can imagine them talking to each other with joy and gladness about Jesus' teaching and the miracles, maybe receiving additional lessons along the way. I mean, this is just great. That's their procession, a joyful crowd of travelers. And as they near Nain, another procession came out of that city, mourning rather than rejoicing. They're part of a funeral procession carrying the dead body of a young man of their town to his burial place. His mother, a widow, now having lost her only child, is weeping. She walks with a large crowd that is part of the sad procession. She's no idea that a God-orchestrated event is about to happen. In Luke 7, 11 to 15, then afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Connecting points with 2 Kings 4. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, don't weep. And he came up and touched the bier of the coffin. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Can, can you imagine seeing that? And the dead man sat up and began to speak in like with the child in Elisha's day, Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, there's some similarities and differences here, but the, the, what I want to emphasize due to time is when Elisha, there was a bit of a long drawn-out drawn process in the healing of the child back then, Jesus spoke, and a dead man came to life. And then verses 16 and 17, we see the impact of this event. Fear sees them all. The kind of fear is like, whoa, that was amazing! like reverential law, and he glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Next slide. Did you see how? Yeah, next slide. Next slide. Sorry, I'm the problem. See? Two miles apart. So, one was located in the southern slopes of the hill of Moray, the other one in the northern slopes of the same hill. I'm suggesting to you that the story of Elisha's raising the Shunammite woman, dead son back to life from 2 Kings 4, would have been a well-known part of the history of the town. And about 700 years later, even when Jesus raised another, raised another dead young man back to life, a widow woman, no chance of anybody else being part of her family, the people of Nain began to connect the dots when they said a great prophet has risen among us. They don't say, like Elisha, but it seems like you're connecting the dots here. They conclude from this amazing event that God had sent Jesus, who was a prophet of God. They hadn't, didn't see he was the Messiah. They hadn't connected all the dots yet. But Christ's role as prophet was part of the way he helped people of his day grasp his messianic identity, preparing the way for the consummation of his first coming.
Let me just wrap up. Next slide. So I have three takeaways. I'll try to fly through them. First, along with the rest of the biblical prophets, Christ's life and teaching was in total agreement with God's revelation of himself through his revealed word. He was God's mouthpiece to the Israelites. He spoke his father's message. He spoke with authority. What can we learn from this reality? Well, in a world with a confusing array of empty authority sources, we need to have God's word to be the anchor for our lives, provide the content for our belief, and serve as the impetus for our conduct. We need to have Bible-based living and expression in how we talk and how we minister. Second, as prophet, Christ's clear message and amazing conduct advertised God's, the Father's surpassing care to everyone who heard and saw him. He didn't just toss out theoretical ideas. He didn't just tell them, do one thing and figure it out. No, he lived out what he taught. He showed them how to live in a way that made prominent the surpassing character of his Father in heaven. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, And brothers and sisters, that's job one for us. We should wake up in the morning thinking, I try to, help my wife, my sweet wife I love with all of my heart. How, how can I help Martha and know God better instead of being a millstone around her neck? My kids, how do I live with my kids and care for them in a way that creates thirst in their heart to have a vibrant walk with the Lord or come to Christ? And how do, I, how do I see the world like God sees it and want to share the gospel and all those things? So he wants us to represent him to that larger world. That's a core value that we need to embrace. And then third, next slide, last one. Jesus, putting his father's character on display through his teaching and miracles, enabled him to help people around him embrace him as the promised Messiah. Now don't get worried here. My takeaway is not we all need to become messiahs, right? Like Jesus? No, that's not the point. But, but think about this. Here's an important truth for us to grasp. What would be the result of our living in a way like Jesus did, putting God's amazing character on display. Just like John the Baptist understood in John 3.30, our life should pursue this objective. He must increase, but I must decrease. I want the world to see less of my Christianity and more of the God who can work through this crack clay vessel. And as we do that, as we live that way, we have the chance to point others around us to Jesus, our prophet and messiah. So I think understanding Jesus is the prophet helps us grasp the continuity of what God is doing. He paved the way for understanding the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, and he gives us an example that can be life-changing. If you're here today you don't know Christ, sometime after the benediction, find one of the church leaders and ask what it means to know God as Heavenly Father and Christ as Savior. And if you're a believer like me, None of us have arrived. Our default setting is something else. So I would just challenge you as I challenge myself. I want to live in a way that shows those around me near and then far a clear picture of this amazing, awesome, incomparable God I have a relationship with. May God help you through his spirit to do that too. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the clarity of your word and its power. Thank you for the example of not only Old Testament prophets that show us your heart.
to help your people know who you are and what you do, but Jesus is doing that very same thing. Thank you that you are the God of all power who can do great things. We, we trust you for that. But I pray that you would, by your spirit, work greatly in our lives to help us to be more than we could be in our own, to do more than we can do at our own, to, to live lives in a way that would point to you in vivid and clear ways, both to those near to us and our brothers and sisters in Christ and church and the difficult world around us because you've called us to demonstrate the difference Christ makes in the life of a human being for your glory. We trust you to that end, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.